from LPM, Louisville Public Media. Support comes from Vision Zero. On foot or behind the wheel, safety is a shared responsibility. And Vision Zero Louisville believes zero roadway fatalities is the only acceptable amount. Their mission is to create safe roads by design, engineering solutions, and education. More information at visionzerolouisville.org. How do you sleep at night? A proper night's sleep is critical to our health, but there are many things standing in the way of a good night's rest. Job stress, the needs of our young children, too much time scrolling on the phone, dietary choices, and medical issues, just to name a few. I'm Rick Howlett. Today on In Conversation, we'll talk about sleep, the consequences of not getting enough of it, and how to improve your sleep. We'll have a panel of experts with us to take your questions. We will begin the show with the latest on this week's Department of Justice report on the Louisville Metro Police Department. Simmons College President Dr. Kevin Cosby and WFPL's Roberto Roldan will join us. The DOJ investigation found, among other things, racism, the widespread use of excessive force, and unlawful warrants within LMPD. It's all ahead on In Conversation on 89.3 WFPL and Kentucky Public Radio. Support for LPM Podcasts comes from the Eye Care Institute and Butchertown Clinical Trials, where they strive for diversity, equity, and inclusion within their staff, patients, and clinical trial participants. To learn more, visit butchertown.clinic. Welcome to In Conversation on 89.3 WFPL and Kentucky Public Radio. I'm Rick Howlett in Louisville. Good to have you with us. We have another great show for you today. Later in the program, we are going to talk about sleep, how important it is to our health and how you can get a better night's rest. But first, we're going to get the latest on the long-awaited report from the U.S. Department of Justice investigation into Louisville Metro Police that came in on Wednesday. It found, among many other things, that Louisville Police engaged in discrimination and a pattern of violating constitutional rights, using excessive force, and uh, joining us to talk about it are Dr. Kevin Cosby, senior pastor of St. Stephen Baptist Church and president of Simmons College of Kentucky, of course, here in Louisville. He has been among the many voices calling for police reforms. He's had his own experiences with police traffic stops. Dr. Cosby, welcome. It's an honor to be with you. Thank you so very much for inviting me. Thanks for being with us. WFPL City reporter Roberto Roldan has been covering the story. He was at the press conference led by U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland at Louisville Metro Hall this week. Roberto, welcome to the show. Thanks for, Thanks for having me. I'm going to start with you, Roberto, and uh, bring everyone up to speed on what's happened since uh, Wednesday, and then we'll talk with Dr. Cosby about his reaction to the events. Uh, the long-awaited Department of Justice report, as I mentioned, came out Wednesday. Merrick Garland, Assistant Attorney General Vanita Gupta also were at the Metro at Metro Hall in person to deliver the report. It was highly critical of uh, Metro Police and Metro government. Uh, Roberto, we know the investigation was prompted by the police shooting death of Breonna Taylor three years ago, almost to the day uh, three years ago, but... How far back did investigators go in gathering information for this report? So uh, there were different time frames for different data based on what the uh, Department of Justice could or couldn't get. Um, you know, one of the, the issues that they found was that for body camera footage, uh, there just wasn't uh, a whole lot of incidents, particularly search warrant executions, uh, where officers activated their body cameras. So it, it kind of depend, uh, depends from issue to issue. But in general, the time period that the DOJ was looking at was uh, around 2016 through late 2021. 
Well, we know, as you may have heard in our uh, newscast, the union representing police officers is pushing back on the report, calling it an unfair assessment. But uh, what are city leaders and the police department leaders uh, saying about the findings? What was their reaction this week? Yeah, so uh, I think Mayor Craig Greenberg first off spoke at the press conference uh, that happened on Wednesday. And one of the things that he tried to make clear is that he, in his speech, dismissed uh, the idea that what the DOJ was, uh, what the DOJ report was saying was uh, going to be political uh, or that this was something that you could find in every other city. Essentially, Mayor Greenberg says this is something um, that, you know, was found here in Louisville and this is about Louisville and the way that the Louisville Metro Police Department and city government uh, provide services uh, to its city, whether it's a, uh, to its residents appropriately or inappropriately. So uh, moving on to what's next, we, we've heard about a consent decree that will be uh, negotiated. Uh, you know, what is that and how does it work? So along with releasing the report Wednesday, Attorney General Merrick Garland announced that Louisville Metro had agreed to negotiate this consent decree, which is essentially a roadmap for reforming the police department and addressing all of the issues that the DOJ found. Based on what's happened elsewhere, I expect that the city and the DOJ are going to negotiate a final dissent decree, uh, consent decree over the coming months. It'll likely include hundreds of policy and training changes that the city is going to be expected to implement. Um, it'll be overseen by a federal judge and an independent monitor who's going to ensure that the city is making progress towards instituting those reforms that are outlined. Dr. Kevin Cosby, let's turn to you. Uh, just first of all, what was your reaction to the report as it was uh, unveiled on Wednesday? Uh, I think I was not surprised. I think most um, Black Louisvillians and Blacks throughout the country were not shocked by the report. It reflects a historic pattern uh, that dates back to Black enslavement, uh, continued uh, through the 20th century. In fact, the Kerner Commission uh, of 1967, 68 indicated that the rebellions um, of the 60s, uh, the rebellions in Newark and New Jersey and in, uh, in Detroit were all triggered by police malfeasance. So this has always happened. This is a part of the historical pattern um, of, of the United States as it relates to how Blacks are treated. Um, Unfortunately, the perception is, is that um, Blacks, to quote um, uh, Supreme Court Justice Tandy, uh, have no rights that uh, whites are bound to respect. And that has been the overwhelming experience for Blacks in this country. Uh, I think the problem has always been that Blacks, are, excuse me, the white community has been in denial. So I'm not surprised when the Fraternal Order of Police uh, denies the reality of the Black experience because historically there has always been a denial or a re refusal to accept the reality of the Black experience because only by accepting it can we truly institute reform. Well, the opportunity is now here to uh, to institute, institute these reforms in this uh, consent decree. Uh, what would you like to see included in, in this uh, in this document, in this decree agreement? Well, I think that uh, the federal government uh, has always been the best friend that the black community has had, always had. We have never been able to uh, depend upon local um, and state municipalities to do justice. So I think that the overseeing of the federal government is, is very important. 
But I want us to go beyond just the issue of policing. You know, the word police is a derivative of the Greek word polis. So when you think about the polis, you're thinking about more than just police. From that word polis comes policies, comes the word politicians, comes polls. Uh, so that really the police is simply a reflection of politicians who have bad policies towards the black community in general. So if you if if you had police uh, who treated the black community humanely, that would not negate the fact that the black community still suffers from 246 years of slavery and another 100 plus years of Jim Crow, uh, benign neglect and political um, apathy that our country refuses to come to grips with. The word violence means to violate and, and it's not simply the police that violate uh, black bodies and black humanity, but it is policies that violate black people that we refuse to come to grips with. Well, you are the president of Simmons College, one of the great uh, historically black uh, colleges uh, in, in our country. I'm interested in, in uh, how your students have uh, reacted to all this and are they eager to get involved in this process? We are trying to, um, hopefully our, our, um, our college, which is an HBCU along with the Pan-African Studies Department at the University of Louisville will have a forum sometime in early April, a community forum uh, around the uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, assassination around April the 4th, we'll have a forum to really engage the community uh, in these issues and not just the whole issue of policing, but for example, Simmons College and St. Stephen Baptist Church where I'm the pastor and president, is in the 40210 zip code, the California community, where the median income is just $12,000. You're talking about decades of benign neglect and decades of disinvestment. We have not really addressed and sought to repair the people who have been the victims of redlining and other racial atrocities. And until we have the courage to face it, James Baldwin says, you cannot fix everything that you face, but you cannot, uh, you cannot, if you don't face it, you can't fix it. And I think there's a lot of things in our country uh, in terms of our history that we must be willing to, to face. Everything is not critical race theory. Everything cannot be dismissed um, as quote unquote, um, the new woke culture. This is America. And we have to come to grips with the fact that black people are the bottom cast, black people uh, are the victims of police brutality, mass incarceration, unemployment, uh, the disproportionate uh, effect that COVID-19 had on the Black community, a whole bevy of things that the Black community suffers from that we must have the courage to face. Roberto Rodin, uh, got about uh, a little over a minute or so. Uh, on a practical level, uh, what, what happens next as far as getting this consent decree uh, process off the ground? Yeah, so I spoke with uh, the chief of police and, and with Mayor Greenberg yesterday, and it sounds like essentially from this point, they're going to be uh, working not only with the DOJ, but they're going to be consulting with uh, community groups. Um, they're going to be consulting with stakeholders. Um, they're probably going to be consulting with the police union uh, as they try to outline this uh, roadmap 
essentially of, of reforms that they're they're going to have to address that'll eventually i expect that that process is going to take months and eventually uh, a final agreement will have to be agreed to by a federal judge uh, they'll hire an independent monitor who will come here uh, and oversee the process and and at that point i mean a consent decree is going to take years um, it, it'll have hundreds of reforms hundreds of policy changes uh, and it's going to be a years-long process the the experts that i've talked to um, have said it's really important for the community to stay engaged. It's hard to stay engaged when we're talking about years, um, but it's really going to be up to the community to hold politicians accountable to implementing the reforms that are going to be in that document. Well, of course, we'll be following every step of the way. WFPL's Roberto Roldan and uh, Dr. Kevin Cosby, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, sleep, the lack of it, what you need to uh, get a good night's sleep with uh, our panel of experts. Hope you'll stay with us uh, for that. Welcome back to End Conversation on 89.3 WFPL and Kentucky Public Radio. I'm Rick Howlett in Louisville. Now we're going to turn our attention to sleep. Next week is Sleep Awareness Week. How do you sleep at night? What keeps you up? How does the lack of sleep affect you mentally and physically? And here to answer these and many other questions are our three guests, all doctors who work in sleep and sleep medicine. Dr. Joe Derjewski is with us, Vice President of Research and Scientific Affairs at the National Sleep Foundation. Dr. Drzevsky, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Good to have you with us. Dr. Karen Johnson is here as well, Professor of Neurology and Medical Director of Bay State Health Regional Sleep uh, Program in Springfield, Massachusetts. Dr. Johnson, good to have you with us. Good morning. And we have our local expert with us, Dr. Kevin Trice, uh, critical care pulmo uh, pulmonologist and sleep medicine specialist with Norton Pulmonary Specialist. Dr. Trice, good to have you with us. Thanks a lot, Rick. Good morning. Well, let me start with uh, you, Dr. Dzerzewski. Uh, uh, I'm sure there's been uh, polls and surveys done uh, about uh, sleep and how much, how many, uh, how much we're getting or we're not getting. But is it safe to assume that most of us don't get enough sleep at night, adults? Yeah, I'd say that's a pretty safe assumption to make. The National Sleep Foundation conducts sleep awareness a week every every year. This is our 25th anniversary, and in conjunction with that, we release the results of our Sleep in America poll, where we kind of tap into the trends and behaviors around sleep. And our latest results do suggest that the majority of Americans are getting less than the NSF recommended seven to nine hours per night. Uh, so on average, um, we're sleeping less than seven hours per night, not where we want to be as a nation, particularly. Uh, is there one thing that stands out in particular uh, that's keeping us up? I, uh, you know, that's, that's a hard thing to pinpoint. Um, the whole host of things I would imagine, uh, technology use, stress, mental health, which I know that we're going to talk about a little bit later, um, habits that are not conducive to sleep. There's a, there's a whole host of things um, that certainly contribute to our um, inability, or maybe not inability, but our, our simple lack of getting the quality sleep that we need each night. Dr. Johnson, what, uh, what effect does sleep deprivation have on our bodies? So there are effects both from sleep deprivation, not getting enough sleep, as well as misalignment of sleep. So a lot of teenagers may get enough sleep overall, um, but they might not get anywhere enough on weekdays and try to catch up it, with it on weekends. And so both of those things really affect our cardiovascular system, increase the risk for obesity, diabetes, heart attacks, strokes, um, strong correlations with mood disorders, depression, um, attention deficit disorder, bipolar disease. 
um, and pretty much everything, um, you know, cognition, attention, and that affects things like safety. So people are more likely to get into accidents um, or, uh, you know, both with car accidents or at work. Um, let me turn to you, Dr. Trice, uh, and talk about uh, the impact of uh, lack of sleep or, or maybe fitful sleep on uh, children. Uh, I mean, is, is it healthy to have them get up super early to get on the school bus? Are we maybe causing some harm uh, in, in that regard? Uh, no. I mean, ideally, children need a lot more sleep than most of them are getting, similar to adults in the United States. They're chronically sleep deprived for the most part. And, and the studies have shown, I think research has shown that the misalignment of our current school schedules, particularly for elementary school children, but even middle and high school children is not really where their circadian rhythm wants them to be. Uh, there's been some significant push on the national level, thanks to people like the National Science uh, National Sleep Foundation and others, to really try to enact legislation to move school start times so that children are allowed to sleep in a little bit later and they're not having such sleep deprivation. Uh, because as Dr. Johnson mentioned, we know its effects on cognition, on memory, on ability to have linear thoughts, on uh, mood and attitude. So I think we're at a crossroads right now where we're trying to decide, is it possible and how quickly can we move school start times to better align with the circadian rhythm of our, of our children? Uh, doc, Dr. Uh, Derjewski, I think you touched on this in uh, your remarks a little earlier, but uh, what is the ideal standard for, for sleep at night? I know people can get by or they seem to get by and seem to do just fine on, on relatively little sleep, just uh, you know, four or five hours, six hours maybe, but uh, what is the, the healthy range again? Yeah, first I'd like to say that there's probably a difference between just getting by and thriving, right? Um, the National Sleep Foundation, our consensus recommendations suggest the, the majority of adults should get between seven and nine hours per night. This ideal duration does change, though, across the lifespan. So adolescents and teens should be getting more sleep, maybe nine to 11 hours per night. In the later years of life, we think that this might be curtailed a little bit to seven to eight hours. But you should definitely be shooting for an amount of sleep that, that allows you to feel your best during the day and function at your highest levels. Uh, Dr. Trice, let me ask you uh, about uh, one of the medical causes of, of sleep deprivation or sleep interruption, I guess, is uh, fairly common with a lot of people, uh, sleep apnea. How, uh, how serious is that? How serious can it be if, you, if it goes untreated? Oh, it can be quite serious. As Dr. Johnson alluded to a little while ago, we know that, you know, Uninterrupted sleep, you know, for sleep fragmentation for any reason can have a host of physiologic and mental uh, consequences. From a physiologic standpoint, we look at increased risk of cardiovascular disease. So that's, you know, atrial fibrillation, irregular heartbeats, heart failure, increased chance of stroke or heart attack, increased chance of uncontrolled diabetes, increased chance of having car accidents or accidents at work. So from a cardiovascular standpoint, there's a significant portion, but also in terms of our mood, um, our ability to, to form memories, to have recall, these are things that are quite significant. So untreated sleep apnea, we know, can have a significant effect on other physical disorders. And if you don't get it treated, it would be very difficult to get those disorders properly controlled. There seems to be a big industry uh, of uh, dealing with uh, sleep apnea, various products out there to uh, deal with it. Uh, most commonly, you hear the, the, the CPAP uh, device. Is that the most common or, or the most uh, trusted uh, treatment uh, in your view for sleep apnea? Absolutely. I think one, we have a history with it. It's been around for you know 50 years. So we kind of know the, the small nuances with it. 
And over the last several decades, there's been you know, improvements in the technology in terms of being able to track pressure and change comfort features like adding humidity or allowing the machine to uh, allow the person to breathe out or exhale easier when using a CPAP machine, maybe changing the type of pressure that comes in, so a BiPAP machine and other advanced machines. But there are secondary options out there. Some patients will do well with an, a dental device, what we call a mandibular advancement device, essentially a really good mouthpiece that will advance the lower jaw and kind of open the airway while they sleep. There are some new devices out there that either stimulate the tongue or uh, either externally through shocking the tongue, kind of sounds odd, or an implant which can actually shock the nerve of the tongue and again, move some of the anatomy forward and increase the space in the back of the airway, as well as positional changes. So yeah, we have several options in our in our arsenal, but CPAP is still the most well-known and by far the most used. You mentioned positional changes. Uh, is it advantageous to sleep on, on one side or the other instead of on your back if you have apnea? In general, all of us do a little bit worse in our back just because of a, a physiology. The gravity will pull the tongue towards the back of the airway. So from an apnea standpoint, it might behoove you to sleep a little bit more to one side or the other. But we also look at the whole patient. We have to make sure, you know, are they sleeping on one side all the time and causing issues with, you know, nerve impingement? Um, do they have reflux disease and should sleep on another side? Uh, is the patient pregnant? So we kind of take the whole patient into effect. But in general, sleeping supine or flat on your back will make the number of apnea events you have higher or worse. You're listening to In Conversation on WFPL and Kentucky Public Radio. I'm Rick Howlett. We are talking about sleep, uh, what to do if you're uh, not getting enough of it, and uh, sleep habits to um, make you feel more healthy and uh, and enhance your uh, physical and mental state. We have our three experts with us. Dr. Uh, Joe Derjewski is with us. He is a Vice President of Research and Scientific Affairs at the National Sleep Foundation. Dr. Karin Johnson is here as well, Professor of Neurology and Medical Director of Bay State Health Regional Sleep Program in Springfield, Massachusetts. And as you just heard, uh, Dr. Kevin Trice, Critical Care Pulmonologist and Sleep Medicine Specialist with Norton Pulmonary Specialist right here in Louisville. Uh, let me ask you, Dr. Johnson, uh, about naps. Is uh, napping a good way to supplement sleep? It really depends. Um, if you don't have enough time to sleep, then taking a nap may help you not be as sleep deprived overall. But what we don't want is the nap to then make it harder to sleep at night. So often if you're taking a long nap or a nap late in the day, that make it may make it harder to fall asleep and you might end up with worse sleep overall. Um, but if that early, shorter nap helps you feel more refreshed for the afternoon, you're still able to sleep well at night, it, it may be useful. I used to work early mornings for many years. I'd get up 3.30 in the morning to come in and do, do radio. And then I would go home after work in the afternoon and take a nap. And a lot of times, if I slept too long, I would feel a lot worse than I did when I, when I went to sleep. Is there an optimal amount? Um, we hear about the power nap. Is there, is there an optimal amount of napping time that's, that's good? Everyone's a little bit different, but often we recommend that sort of 20, 30 minute nap. If people are getting, you know, into especially longer than hour or two hour naps, you can start going into slow wave sleep. And when you can wake up from that, sometimes you actually feel more groggy and worse. And then if you have things like sleep apnea, that's making you tired. Um, and, and that's why you're napping. Then sometimes, you know, people will feel worse because the sleep they're getting isn't good quality sleep either. Uh, let's talk about the physical effects of, cause we're all on our, our phones. We're scrolling, uh, at night, maybe close to bedtime, uh, maybe on our iPads or, or watching uh, TV. 
Dr. Uh, Derjevsky, what, what sort of impact, what sort of uh, physical impact do, do those devices have on us, especially if we're using them late at night right before bed? Yeah, it's, it's a great question because it's, it's uh, the use of cell phones and tablets in the bed and right before going to bed is, is, is sky high right now. Um, what happens when you use a device in, in your bed and in your bedroom and right before bed? I think it's twofold. First, you're getting this intense, because it's very close to your eyes, exposure to bright light, which is stimulating. Um, but you're also using it to most of the time look at content that is in some way emotionally arousing, right? So you have the stimulation from the light, but you also have this emotional stimulation, whether you're looking at pictures of grandchildren or reading political commentary, it's usually not content that's you know conducive to nice, relaxing, good sleep. So it's a double-edged sword, I think, the devices at night. 502-814-TALK is our number. If you have a question or comment for our panel on the sleep, 502-814-8255. You can tweet us too. WFPL News is our handle. Let's go to Christy in Louisville. Hello, Christy. Thanks for waiting. Welcome to the program. Thank you. I uh, was diagnosed with sleep apnea probably three years ago in my early 60s and um, was told to try the CPAP machine. So I got the machine and was not successful in being able to sleep with it. So I tried through their suggestion various nose pieces and masks and various things. And ultimately, um, after throwing the the tube across the bedroom um, more than once, I gave up after about six to eight months of trying because it was affecting my sleep more using the CPAP than without. Um, when I went back to the sleep clinic where I had initially been assessed with a with a home test, I was basically told to keep trying. Um, so I'm wondering, is there something that you all experts might suggest where I can go for a, another more maybe detailed assessment and um, for alternative advice for treatment. Dr. Trice, I'll, I'll direct that one to you. And if the two other doctors want to respond, that, that's fine as well. They can speak up. Hey, Christy. So sorry to hear about the experience you're having. This is not uncommon. Um, maybe two, three decades ago, what we would see is about a third of patients who presented to a sleep clinic and were diagnosed with obstructive sleep apnea would have difficulty getting acclimated to a CPAP mask or machine. That number is probably closer to 10% now because of things that providers or physicians or nurse practitioners do different now, as well as some of the technology. So there are some techniques we can use, and honestly, we didn't do a great job before of helping you get acclimated. We would just say, try harder and really kind of blame the patient. Now we're aware of things like making sure that is it the proper pressure, so maybe a titration study in the laboratory to see if you'd benefit from maybe a BiPAP instead of a CPAP. Do you have claustrophobia or issues with allergies or irritation because of the mask? Are you a mouth breather? Are there other stimulants in the bedroom at night, like a cell phone or a tablet that are keeping you awake? Do you have leg movements or restless legs that are interfering with your sleep? Do you have bad reflux disease? So I think sometimes presenting to a sleep medicine specialist, my background is in pulmonary critical care and the vast majority of us uh, have some training in sleep, but there are neurologists, there are psychiatrists, there are sleep only providers and getting a comprehensive evaluation and possibly an in-laboratory study, I think would be the next step. And then also looking at, as I mentioned, alternative therapies. So again, whether it's you know a medical implant, upper airway surgeries, uh, new devices, there are other treatments other than a, a machine and a mask that might be able to help you. 
Christy, thanks for your call. I hope you get some relief. We appreciate your sharing your uh, story with us. Uh, Dr. Trice, she mentioned going to a, a sleep clinic, and I know there uh, are resources available for people who are having trouble. What, hap- what happens when a person gets a, uh, for lack of a better term, a sleep test that measures you know, how much they're waking up? How does that work? So there's two major type of tests. One is the home sleep test, uh, which of course is more common now. It's been validated to be good enough in most patients who have kind of uncomplicated comorbid disease or very straightforward symptoms. And that's a test that's benefited as it's performed in the patient's home. Uh, They're in their own bed. They're in their own environment. It's very non-invasive. There's a small cannula that fits in the nose, usually a strap or two across the chest and upper part of the belly, an oximeter or a little meter on the fingertip to measure the oxygen saturations and a few leads to look at EKG or heart rhythm. So again, that's by far the most common test I think that's done. And then there's the traditional gold standard test, which is an in-laboratory called polysomnography. That one has a lot more involved. We're measuring for movements and leg twitches. There are wires that are EEG attached to the head. We're actually looking at the stages of sleep and we're looking for more things than just straightforward sleep apnea. But either way, once the test is completed, if it is diagnostic of sleep apnea, then typically the patient is given a series of treatments or options that they can proceed with to make sure that we can improve their sleep quality and also reduce their chance of having those cardiovascular or other events because of untreated apnea. So in the, in the laboratory's uh, setting, the, the, the patient comes in, uh, are, they, are these typically covered you know, by insurance? Yeah, so usually covered, almost always we'll check to make sure that these are covered. I always tell my patients, covered doesn't mean paid for. That's an insurance phrase. Yeah. You always want to ask, how much am I going to have to pay for this out of pocket? And of course, that varies wildly between patients, depending on what their insurance pays for. So whether it's covered or not, if you haven't met your deductible, you're going to end up paying money out of pocket. So whether you have you know Medicare or you have insurance to the military or your private pay or self-pay, um, these can be very different in terms of cost. Um, but I think every single sleep lab should be able to give you an exact amount of what it will cost you out of pocket before you proceed with the test. You don't get stuck with the bill in the end, having no idea what it's actually going to cost you. We are going to uh, take a break. We are talking about uh, sleep, the lack of it, how much you need to uh, be healthy with our our uh, panel, which includes Dr. Kevin Trice, who you just heard, critical care pulmonologist and sleep medicine specialist with Norton Pulmonary Specialist here in Louisville. Also with us is Dr. Karen Johnson, professor of neurology and medical director, uh, director of Bay State Health Regional Sleep Program up in Springfield, Massachusetts, and Dr. Joe Derjewski, who is a vice president of research and scientific affairs at National Sleep Foundation. A lot of you are waiting to uh, ask your questions, share your stories. We appreciate that. We'll come back and get to all of you after this break. This is In Conversation on 89.3 WFPL and Kentucky Public Radio. Support comes from Vision Zero. On foot or behind the wheel, safety is a shared responsibility. And Vision Zero Louisville believes zero roadway fatalities is the only acceptable amount. Their mission is to create safe roads by design, engineering solutions, and education. More information at visionzerolouisville.org. 
Welcome back to In Conversation on 89.3 WFPL and Kentucky Public Radio. I'm Rick Howlett in Louisville. We're talking about sleep. Well, how much you need to uh, be healthy? What happens if you don't uh, get enough sleep? And we have uh, three experts with us, Dr. Joe Derjewski, who is Vice President of Research and Scientific Affairs at the National Sleep Foundation. Dr. Karen Johnson is Professor of Neurology and Medical Director of Bay State Health Regional Sleep Program up in Springfield, Massachusetts. And Dr. Kevin Trice is with us, critical care pulmonologist and sleep medicine specialist with Norton Pulmonary Specialist. And let's get to Marsha in Louisville. Marsha, thanks for waiting. Welcome to In Conversation. Thank you. Go ahead. What's on your mind? Okay. I consider myself a light sleeper, and uh, I wake up very early, and uh, I'm on an early schedule, but uh, many times I cannot get back to sleep and uh, have to kind of force myself to lay there and try to get back to sleep. So how I deal with this is, uh, well, for one thing, I, I feel like I don't need a tremendous amount of time to sleep. Like five hours, I usually function pretty good. But I rely occasionally on over-the-counter sleep aids. And, and I'm reluctant to use them regularly. Uh, I'm worried about, you know, I don't want to be addicted. I don't want to have to rely on them for a full night's sleep. Mm-hmm. I have not talked to my doctor about that, but I'm wondering if I need a prescribed help to help me sleep more soundly and longer. And I am not a nap taker. I, you know, I might lay down in the afternoon, but I rarely feel like I get adequate full sleep with a nap. I get a little rest, but napping doesn't really happen. Good question. Let me direct. Uh, we'll direct it to uh, Dr. Johnson, and the others can uh, add to it if they like. Dr. Johnson, what what were your uh, what's your position on uh, uh, over the counter sleep aids? So you know, you brought up a lot of good things. One is you know exactly how much sleep does an individual need. So you know, while most adults do need more sleep than you're getting, it's possible that you are one of those short sleepers that just don't need as enough, you know, that much sleep. So in general, I tell my patients, if you're feeling good during the day, if your health problems are, you know, overall well-controlled, then, you know, five hours might, might be the right amount for you. Um, if you're having very light and fragmented um, sleep, Um, It could be a sign of things like sleep apnea. Women are more likely to present with insomnia and difficulty maintaining sleep. And you might not be loud snorers or have, you know, daytime um, sleepiness. So really trying to figure out, is there, you know, A, the need for more sleep? And then um, is there something else that's disturbing the sleep? Um, early morning wakings is one of the hardest, you know, things. Um, and some people are just what we call morning larks and and they have that early schedule. And again, that would be normal in terms of whether you need meds for a story like yours. If you're feeling good in the day, I would not put you on medications just to meet a number, um, in an hour of sleep. I'd really focus on how you're feeling. So the best thing might be just to get up and, and start your day early, Um, Often, if you stay lying in bed and getting frustrated and thinking about why you can't sleep, that actually makes you um, more likely to have difficulty sleeping. So get up, you know, you can stay calm, do something restful, less light, less electronics until the day 
time is starting, um, but that might get you in a pattern where you end up starting to sleep longer. And one other big thing is clock watching. What we really don't want people to do is wake up, look, see it's 2 a.m., 3 a.m. and get frustrated about it because that's going to wake you up even more. Marcia, thanks so much for your call. Let's go to uh, Jeff in Louisville. Hello, Jeff. Welcome to In Conversation. Um, thank you. Um, I have a uh, situation that's kind of the same for my daughter and I. Uh, we both take a stimulant ADD medication. Uh, she's on a long-lasting. I'm on a, a short-lasting, so I take it multiple times. Uh, I work shift work, so oftentimes I'm not home until 11, sometimes midnight, uh, and I have trouble falling asleep. Uh, same time, my daughter needs to get to sleep, uh, but she has to get up at 6.30 in the morning because the middle school starts so early, so... We do take melatonin. I'm wondering when you suggest taking that, how early beforehand, and if you have any suggestions for trying to uh, uh, help our sleep patterns when you have uh, ADD medications that are kind of interfering into your uh, wind down time. Uh, Dr. Trice, I'll direct that one to you. What's uh, uh, your position on uh, melatonin? Sure. Well, it sounds like you have a couple of different sleeping disorders, what we would call, or maybe just sleep conditions. So one of the things you mentioned was shift work disorder or shift work sleep disorder. So of course, there's a lot of shift workers out there, you know, from industry, you know, I'm, we're in Louisville, Kentucky, there's people who work night shift at UPS and police officers and nurses, firefighters, uh, quite a few people who work overnight shifts. And this is something that can be common. Some people tolerate switching between what I call time zones well, and other people don't tolerate it as well. So we know, as we mentioned earlier, light is probably the biggest stimulant to help you not only wake up, but to become alert. So using light at the appropriate time and avoiding light at the appropriate time can be very beneficial. So that's the first and foremost. So making sure that you're not looking at electronics or you know television or phone right before bedtime, that can be very helpful. When you're trying to go to sleep, the absence of light or low light situations can be helpful. Melatonin absolutely has a role. Most of the studies really talk about the timing of melatonin versus the actual doses of it. Um, but there are little scales that we use and we can actually tell you what's the best time to take it so that you can fall asleep in general. Um, that's kind of something more specific you might want to talk to your provider or sleep medicine specialist about. And maybe slightly different for your daughter who's a little bit younger and is using it for a different reason. So one of it is just more of a sleep aid to help fall asleep, whereas one is kind of resetting your internal clock. When someone is using a stimulant, of course, the timing and dose of the stimulants is very important. Are they taking it too close to bedtime? Are they taking too much? Are they taking other stimulants like over-the-counter caffeine products? Um, all of these things can be really need to be elucidated to kind of give you a, an ideal time to take the medication, both what I call the upper in the morning, your morning, whatever time that might be, and also something to help relax the brain at night. So this is something I would definitely speak to a provider a pediatric sleep medicine specialist for your child and maybe an adult sleep medicine specialist for yourself. Thanks for your call, Jeff, and good luck to you. Uh, Lisa in Louisville has an, another uh, melatonin-related question. We'll go to her now. Lisa, thanks for waiting. Welcome to In Conversation. Yes, thanks for taking my call. My name, I wanted to ask about, I do take melatonin, and I actually have to take one, two, five, because one ten won't work. That was a peculiar to me. But I was told that as you age, you lose melatonin in your body. And is that true? And um, is it okay to take all the time? Because I take it every night. Uh, I'll, I'll come back to you, Dr. Trice. Is it safe to take uh, long term? Yes, in general, it is an over-the-counter medication. And yes, in general, it is safe to take long term. 
I tell patients, again, if you're taking something over the counter every single night, then they may be better served with a prescription medication. And you want to make sure you're taking the right dose for the right reason at the right time. So you mentioned, you know, taking two fives versus 110. Is that different than maybe three milligrams or six milligrams? Should you take it an hour before bedtime? Should you take it two hours before bedtime? What other medications are you taking that might interfere with it? What other sleep hygiene or sleep habits do you have that may interfere with it? So it can be more than just that one medication as to how it affects your overall sleep. And I think that's the important part of really talking to a practitioner to try to evaluate your sleep as a whole and not just one medication or one particular item that can be affecting it. We are talking about sleep and your health on In Conversation here on WFPL and Kentucky Public Radio. Our guests are Dr. Kevin Trice, who you just heard, critical care pulmonologist and sleep medicine specialist with Norton Pulmonary Specialist here in Louisville. Also with us is Dr. Karen Johnson, professor of neurology and medical director of Bay State Health Regional Sleep Program in New England, Springfield, Massachusetts. And Dr. Joe Derjewski, who is vice president of research and scientific affairs at the National Sleep Foundation. And let's go back to the phones because Phyllis is on line five. Phyllis, welcome to the program. Thank you. <coughs> Sorry. That's all right. I'm an older adult. I will be 90. <coughs> Excuse me. I'll be 92 in a couple of weeks. And I have found that as I age, and of course now I'm retired, I get sleepy really early. I usually watch TV, Jeopardy, and then I, and that's over at 8 o'clock, and I'm getting sleepy about that time. I do take 2 milligrams of melatonin uh, every night as I'm already in bed. <coughs> but the thing that concerns me is I am in bed sleeping off and on for like 11 hours. And I I get up, go to the bathroom. I'm an NPR fan, so I, when I awaken to go to the bathroom, I put on, it's BBC at night. Mm-hmm. I put that on, and I, and I have a button so that it goes off in 20 minutes or whatever. And I keep doing that till about, seven in the morning and uh so i'm really in bed and sleeping off and on for 11 hours and i have pretty much energy during the day for my age i know and so what do you think about those sleep habits let me uh we'll pass that along to our panel here dr uh Derjewski. is is uh that uh, too much sleep to, uh, for her to be getting at night well I think the first thing to say is um, it's it's unclear how much sleep is actually happening within those 11 hours, right? There's there's a nice analogy out there about making a pizza with a certain amount of dough. You try to make a bigger pizza, you're going to stretch the dough and there'll be a whole bunch of holes in it. Sometimes it's better to have a smaller pizza that's complete and full. In this case, a lot of people prefer their sleep to be consolidated in one, two, or three large chunks than these 40 minutes, wake up, use the restroom, watch a little TV, 40 minutes, so on and so forth. Um, it, also, it also reminds me of the idea that the bed is a tool and the tool is for sleep. When you start doing other things in the bed, like watching TV throughout the night, it confuses your body about what you should actually be doing at that time. So we recommend people remove those other things from the bed in the bedroom to help strengthen that association. 
help increase the odds that when you're in bed, you'll sleep longer. Um, but, but really that the idea of trying to consolidate, stay up a little bit later if possible, get out of bed if you're not sleeping, but, but not spending you know, 11 hours. But here's the thing, if you feel well during the day, again, you know, who am I to say to stop doing that unless it's a problem for you? Phyllis, are you still there? Yes, I'm still here, and I just want to comment. I'm not watching TV. I'm listening to the radio, and I yeah. set it so that it goes off automatically. Mm-hmm. So I understand yeah. about screens, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I would say the same thing still probably holds true for the radio. It's the idea that you're listening, you're, you're actively listening to something, um, the content, you're processing it, whatever that content might be. You're doing something other than just sleeping in bed. Um, but again, I maintain that if this is not an issue for you, then, then there's, there's nothing to be concerned about unless it's a behavior you want to change. If you want to sleep more consolidated throughout the night and spend less time in bed, I would suggest maybe trying without the radio for a while. Yeah. What do you think about the two milligrams every night? <coughs> I, I, would pa- I would pass that to Dr. Trice, but I will make one comment that, because uh, we've heard a lot about melatonin so far. The United States is one of the few countries where melatonin is available in the store. In all of Europe, you actually do need a prescription to get this medication. So you have to sit down with a physician. And with that, I will pass it to a physician. <laughs> go, go ahead, Dr. Trice. Thanks, Joe. I, I would say, first of all, Phyllis, uh, congratulations on your upcoming birthday. Um, you know, you, you've made it to an advanced age, and I, I think that's something to not take lightly. Um, as Joe said, first, if it doesn't bother you, if it doesn't bother you a lot, it may not need any changing whatsoever. I think we're all relatively jealous of being able to go to sleep at eight o'clock and being in the bed for 11 hours. But as you said, you know, if you're the, the analogy I give is a baseball game, you know, and, and no offense to those who love baseball, but it's, you know, maybe five minutes of action packed into three hours. And so in those 11 hours in bed, if you're sleeping 11 hours is very different than if you're in bed for 11 hours and only sleeping six hours. And as you said, then you may have five hours of an association that's non-sleep. And so I think in general, most people don't require 11 hours of sleep. So reducing your overall time in bed may be helpful. And one of the ways of doing that would be to reduce or eliminate the times when you wake up things that you do. So I always tell my patients, you can't be actively trying to sleep and actively doing something else. You can be passively thinking you're sleeping and actively listening to the radio or doing two things at once. But sleep is something that you really want to try and do by itself. You don't want to be doing sleep plus something else. So either reducing the time to, on the radio or turning it off and you can record it or listen to it later. And that may be helpful uh, along with melatonin if that's worked for you for so long. But again, the big thing we're looking at, at you as an individual, how much does your actual schedule bother you and how much of it do you want to change? Um, I think that's the first place to start because, again, if this is not a major issue, we may not recommend any major changes to you whatsoever. Phyllis, thanks so much for your call, and happy 92nd birthday to you. Uh, We have uh, time for one more call here, just a couple of minutes left in the program. Let's go to uh, Bronson in Louisville. Bronson, welcome to In Conversation. Hi, how are you doing? Good. What's on your mind? Uh, I quit drinking maybe a year and a half ago or so, and any sleep problems I had before then have pretty much all disappeared. I I just want to know what the experts have to say about the relationship between alcohol consumption and uh, sleeping problems, disorders. Dr. Johnson, I'll, I'll direct that to you. How does alcohol affect our sleep? 
So there's a couple of ways alcohol can affect sleep. Um, for a lot of people, it actually will help them fall asleep, but then it leads to more dis sleep disruption later in the night. So people tend to wake up um, more. Um, the other thing is it can worsen disorders like sleep apnea. Um, and so if, if, if it was triggering sleep apnea and now with less alcohol, um, you know, that's cleared up, that could be another reason why people sleep better in the long run without alcohol. Bronson, thanks for your call. We had uh, a caller who couldn't stay on the line. Olivia uh, has uh, is looking for advice for people who uh, sleep hot. I guess their body temperature goes up. What does what does that mean, and how can it be improved? Is is that a pretty common thing, Doctor Johnson? People's body temperature going up or down during sleep? Yeah, there's you know a lot of differences. So there are people that are you know hot in the evening and cold later in the night, or the opposite. Um, you know, often when our body cools off, it does promote sleep. So most people do sleep better in a cooler environment. Some people, you know, open windows, even on cold nights or have fans on them. Um, and also sometimes taking a shower before bed to heat up your body and then let it cool can be something that can promote sleep. Um, so really everyone's just difference and there are products out there like cooling mattress pads and things like that. So if, you know, use those fans, use what's right for you. But in general, most people are going to sleep better in a cooler environment. We're just about out of time. We don't have time for another call, but we have a caller who's holding it, wants to know uh, what resources you would recommend to learn more about sleep. Dr. Drzewski, where, where can people go? Uh, is there a website or another resource people can go to to learn more about sleep and what to do about a lack of it? Of course, you know, uh, we'd love everyone to come visit the National Sleep Foundation online at thensf.org. There's only one National Sleep Foundation. We've been the public's trusted source for information on sleep and sleep health for over 30 years now. So please visit us at thensf.org. Great. I want to thank you all for joining us. Our three doctors uh, is very informative, very helpful today. We appreciate you joining us here on In Conversation. And we also want to thank our In Conversation production team, Michelle Tyreen Johnson, Laura Ellis, Brad Yost, and Russell Wells. Sally Evans has been doing our newscast this week. Our opening and closing theme was composed by Kojin Tashiro. And I'm Rick Howlett. Thanks for listening. Support for LPM Podcasts comes from the Eye Care Institute and Butchertown Clinical Trials, where they strive for diversity, equity, and inclusion within their staff, patients, and clinical trial participants. To learn more, visit butchertown.clinic.